One Week Season. NFL Edge Audio. Saints at Panthers. Kickoff Sunday, September 25th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 40 and a half. Game Overview by Hilo. Carolina has a lot to figure out offensively, with primary struggles coming through the form of situational play calling. Carolina's defense utilizes light packages and unique blitz looks to keep pass plays in front of them. This scheme is much better suited to playing in neutral to positive environments. The Panthers have run only 111 combined offensive plays over two games, or about 16, eight plays per game, lower than league average through two games. The Saints have been forced into tempo during the second half in each of their first two games, likely indicating a team that would otherwise like to slow things down offensively. New Orleans has run only 127 combined offensive plays from scrimmage through two games. The combined time of possession through two games for these two teams is a laughable 51 minutes and 4 seconds, meaning there are almost two full possessions unaccounted for. How New Orleans will try to win The Saints rank right around league average in both first-half pace of play and situation-neutral pace of play, but their overall pace of play has been synthetically propped up by a blistering second-half pace of play, indicating to me that they would like to run a slower pace but have been forced into tempo later in games. They also rank right around league average in pass rate over expectation, which is notable considering the injury quarterback Jameis Winston is playing through. Furthermore, much of their offensive game plan likely revolves around the respective health of running back Alvin Kamara and the aforementioned Jameis Winston. Winston fractured his back in the season opener and then left Week 2's contest with an ankle injury, while Ivan Kamara is dealing with multiple painful rib cartilage fractures, likely requiring Novocaine or lidocaine injections on game day and a protective pad. It's difficult to read into the 66% pass rate from Week 2 against the Tampa Bay defense that has led the league in pass attempts against it each of the previous two seasons, meaning I'd expect the Saints to want to bias their attack towards the ground if possible, considering the status of their starting quarterback. The good news for them is their opponent this week utilizes a defensive scheme tailored to erasing the pass, with unique light packages designed to clog the areas of the field where bulk damage can be done. As things currently stand, I expect Alvin Kamara to be held out for another week as he tends to his rib cartilage fractures, meaning we should expect another week of Mark Ingram, Tony Jones, and Adam Prentice backfield usage. Most notable amongst those three was the lack of a meaningful snap rate bump for Ingram, which could be explained away as matchup-specific last week. The Saints' offensive line has severely underperformed through two weeks, leading to a sub-4.0 net adjusted line yards metric, 3.945, against the Panthers. I would tentatively expect Ingram's snap rate to see a small boost as the primary rusher without Kamara, with Jones utilized in a change of pace and third down roll. Overall, this is not a positive situation for the Saints to find themselves in on the ground. Equally as frustrating as the ground game to date is the relative rotational roles we're seeing from primary pass catchers through two weeks, with second-year tight end Jawan Johnson, 76.5%, rookie wide receiver Chris Olave, 75%, veteran slot man Jarvis Landry, 70.3%, and veteran alpha Michael Thomas, 69.5%, all near even in snap rates played. Of note, Thomas saw a marked increase in snap rate in week two, jumping from 61 to a team-leading 76% at the wide receiver position. That said, it will be difficult to trust any for a weekly floor if the tight rotation of pass catchers holds for an offense utilizing heavy 12 personnel alignments. I'm certain most analysts and fanalists will point to the absurd 334 air yard, 13 target, 5 for 80 and 0 performance in week 2, 
but the Buccaneers ran the highest rate of cover one man in 2021, and the Panthers run some of the highest rates of cover three zone, meaning we aren't likely to see Jameis target a streaking Olave in man coverage as often this week. That should leave Michael Thomas, Jawan Johnson, and Jarvis Landry to soak up the underneath targets in the areas of the field Carolina is likely to allow. How Carolina will try to win. The discussion surrounding Carolina's game plan must start with their defense. Defensive coordinator Phil Snow has taken his vast experience in the college game and transferred many unique defensive packages to his defense in Carolina, including unique 3-3-5, 3-2-6, and even 2-3-6 alignments. Snow mixed in unique blitzes from those light packages at the third highest frequency a year ago, 33.7%, but has blitzed only 16% of the time this season. On the other side of the ball, Matt Rule has a lot to figure out offensively. Situational play calling has been a mess. Route trees have been straightforward, the offensive line has struggled in run-blocking assignments, and quarterback Baker Mayfield is sporting the worst completion rate in the league through two weeks. This is still a team that likes to play with tempo, carrying a second-ranked situation-neutral pace of play, and third overall ranking through two weeks. The major issue has been the offense's inability to sustain drives, putting additional pressure on a defense better suited to clamping down on the pass, as in, the defense has held up fairly well considering the neutral to negative game scripts this team has found itself in to start the year. Finally, although the Panthers rank at league average and pass rate over expectation, their situational play calling has remained rather predictable, something that can be fixed moving forward. Overall, this offense has run only 53 and 58 offensive snaps from scrimmage while holding a top 5 pace of play, further indication of the struggles to sustain drives thus far. Running back Christian McCaffrey started the season with a conservative snap load, by his standards, 81%, which increased in Week 2 to a more McCaffreyan 91%. He has been in a route on 48 of 69 quarterback dropbacks, seeing 10 of 56 Mayfield targets directed his way, 17.9%. He even scampered for 102 yards on the ground last week and is responsible for 25 of 30 total running back rush attempts over the first two weeks, 83.3%. The only thing missing thus far is the general shortcoming of the offense overall, one that has scored just four total touchdowns through two games. All of that to say, CMC is going to be just fine, and we're likely to see a few 30% plus team target market share spike weeks along the way. As I said before, the primary issue with the offense has been situational play call, something that can change in a hurry. The matchup on the ground is not the best seeding a putrid 3.765 net-adjusted line yards metric against a New Orleans rush defense long known to stifle opposing rushing attacks. Rule's offense is based heavily on 11 personnel, with hints of 21 personnel, utilizing fullback Giovanni Ricci, thrown in. The offense has run exactly zero offensive snaps from 12 personnel in 2022, which is more of a nod to the lack of blocking chops between Ian Thomas and Tommy Tremble. Top wide receivers DJ Moore and Robbie Anderson have combined to play all but six offensive snaps thus far, with slot man Shai Smith playing healthy snap rates of 77 and 71% over the first two weeks. Only Terrence Marshall has seen any snaps outside of the top three wide receivers, playing only six total snaps on the season. To say this is a concentrated offense is putting it lightly. It is highly unlikely we see Marshawn Lattimore utilized in shadow coverage this week, with the New Orleans defense likely to be based in cover three with heavy blitz fronts and cover one utilization on third downs. That somewhat limits the upside of deep threat Robbie Anderson and man-beater DJ Moore, leaving volume as the likeliest indicator of potential fantasy goodness. The biggest beneficiary of the heavy cover three zone scheme likely to be utilized by New Orleans is running back Christian McCaffrey, and the tight ends, the latter of whom have split snaps at about a 2-to-1 ratio, Ian Thomas between 66 and 70%, 
and Tommy Tremble playing well behind him. Likeliest game flow. The likeliest game flow here depends heavily on the health of Saints quarterback Jameis Winston and Saints running back Alvin Kamara, the latter of whom I don't expect to play this week. Jameis will now be fighting through four fractures in his freaking back in addition to a bum ankle, meaning his pocket mobility must be put into question. This, in addition to a heavy zone prevent defense, could lead to additional opportunities for sacks to be generated behind a bottom 10 pass-blocking offensive line. But I also guarantee head coach Dennis Allen is thinking about these potentials, bringing us back to my earlier assertion that the Saints are likelier to try and bias their game plan towards the ground this week, while slowing down their pace of play and allowing their defense to keep them in the game. This should provide a game environment with little room to erupt as the Panthers have proven to be largely incapable of sustaining any offensive momentum this season, checking in with the lowest average time of possession over the first two weeks. As such, and we'll cover this more in the interpretation section, I have very little interest in the offensive pieces from this game from a range of outcomes perspective. Texans at Bears. Kickoff Sunday, September 25th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 40. Game Overview by Hilo. Houston has played at the league's fourth fastest situation neutral pace of play and fastest pace of play in the first half through two weeks. The Texans also rank in the top 10 in pass rate over expectation this year. Chicago appears to be playing fast, with the league's ninth fastest situation neutral pace of play, but their first half pace of play, more indicative of intent early in the year, ranks all the way down at 31st. The Bears have the lowest pass rate over expectation in the league, notably allowing Fields to attempt only 28 total passes through two games. The Houston defense has somehow missed 27 tackles over two games, which is a completely abhorrent number. There are over 8 minutes of lost time of possession between these two teams, 51 minutes 58 seconds combined. The combined yards per carry of running backs in this game is a laughable 2.825. How Houston will try to win. The Texans, somewhat surprisingly, come into Week 3 with the league's fastest first-half pace of play and 10th highest pass rate over expectation, which is a far cry from what we all thought coming into the season under Lovey Smith. Pep Hamilton told us all off-season that he had faith in his second-year quarterback. Maybe we were just too thick-headed to listen? The Texans have a respectable 128 offensive plays from scrimmage through two games, which lands slightly below league average, but lands at 25th in average time of possession. Houston's offensive line surprisingly ranks in the top half of the league, particularly strong in pass protection to start the year, which could be a signal of their slight pass-leaning ways, although it is much more likely to be due to their sieve-like defense. The ground game for the Texans has been a veritable disaster for fantasy purposes over two weeks, with Rex Burkhead and rookie Damian Pierce taking turns in a featured role, 71-29% in Week 1 and 37-62% in Week 2 for Burkett and Pierce, respectively. Houston running backs have combined to muster just 2.92 yards per carry behind an offensive line generating only 3.72 adjusted line yards. The matchup yields a trivial 4.065 net adjusted line yards metric. The positional target rate for Houston running backs in 2022 is 18.1%. Everything about the running back situation hints at disaster here. I just thought it would be fun to list out everything I could find regarding the situation. Suffice to say, there isn't much else to discuss with this one. Brandon Cooks holds a massive 30.6% team target market share on a 96% route participation rate, has the 10th most air yards thus far at 211, good for 34.4% of the team's share, but has underperformed to the tune of wide receiver 35 overall numbers. 
I guess that's what happens when you catch only 11 of 22 targets and fail to find the end zone. I lead with Cooks because this offense is truly Cooks or bust through the air, as no other pass catcher has seen a snap rate over 67% over our two-week sample. Nico Collins, Chris Moore, and Chris Connolly have rotated through behind Cooks at wide receiver while blocking tight end Farrell Brown leads the team in snap rate at the position, leaving only scraps for Brevin Jordan and newcomer O.J. Howard to fight over in the pass-catching tight end role. How Chicago will try to win I'm not certain the Bears, or head coach Matt Eberflus, know how they are trying to win games up to this point. Chicago has run only 99 total offensive plays from scrimmage through two contests, holds the league's lowest pass rate over expectation, and run the second slowest offense in the league. Their offensive line ranks 30th per PFF, notably struggling to the tune of the league's highest adjusted sack rate allowed, after finishing 2021 ranked dead last as well, and the second lowest adjusted line yards created, 3.04, leading to only 2.73 running back yards per carry. Instead of realizing those shortcomings and building around them, Eberflus and company are attempting to hide their second-year quarterback, Justin Fields, by playing slow and not allowing him to throw. Maybe, just maybe, you'd have better success leveraging his rushing ability through designed runs and his bullet of an arm through quick passing, Not, I can dream, can't I? The reality of the matter is the first-year head coach and first-year offensive coordinator, Luke Getze, appear more interested in additional job security outs by blaming the struggles on their signal caller instead of trying to maximize his talents. Finally, the Bears have somehow generated a massive 30.2% hurry rate on defense while blitzing only 1.6% of the time this season. The Bears utilize below-average 11 personnel alignments, instead electing for increased heavy sets, 21 and 12 personnel, likely in an attempt to mitigate the shortcomings of their putrid offensive line. That has led to increased offensive snaps for fullback Kari Blasingham and tight end Ryan Griffin, both of whom are not even above average in pass-blocking or run-blocking metrics per PFF. Starting tight end Cole Komet couldn't block a pop-up on a cut-rate website. One positive, from a fantasy perspective, is the borderline workhorse usage for starting running back David Montgomery, which appears to have transcended the change in coaching staff at least for the time being. Montgomery upped his snap rate from 66% in Week 1 to 80% in Week 2 and has handled 71.7%, or 38 of 53, of all running back opportunities out of the backfield through two games. We should theoretically expect increased pass game usage for Montgomery considering the offensive line struggles. His 75% route participation rate ranks second in the league amongst running backs through two weeks, and he holds a spectacular 1.81 yards per route run, which ranks 10th at the position. There should, again an emphasis on theoretically, be better days ahead for Montgomery considering those lofty metrics. The pass-catching core for the Bears should be thought of as Darnell Mooney, Cole Komet, David Montgomery, and then everyone else. Equinemius St. Brown is technically second on the depth chart at wide receiver, but has played only 76 and 71% of the team's offensive snaps, while Dante Pettis slots in as the wide receiver three and has played 40 and 56% snap rates in the first two weeks. Byron Pringle has mixed in for a handful of snaps each week and shouldn't contribute in a standard week. As we'll cover below, the Texans' defense can be had for chunk gains, so there may be some hope yet for this motley crew. Likeliest game flow. I don't think we can realistically say the Bears will dictate much of anything at all until they start trying to win games as opposed to hiding their flaws. It's truly remarkable to have a team with talented offensive pieces be hamstrung so directly by their coaching staff. 
We can fully expect Lovey Smith to stack the box defensively until Fields, Getze, and Eberflus show they can beat them aerially. As in, for all the things Lovey is not, he is at least a sharp defensive mind capable of developing a game plan to neutralize the strengths of his opponent. As such, Lovey and his makeshift defense, yeah, the same one that has allowed 433.5 yards on offense per game over two weeks, is likeliest to control the flow of the game until the Bears can show some form of dynamism. As you can probably tell by now, due to the length of this write-up, there isn't a ton to feel great about here. Tributaries The glaring shortcoming of the Houston defense is a massive 27 missed tackles through two games, meaning the athleticism at all four primary skill positions for the Bears could break the game open, assuming Getzey allows his playmakers room to thrive. That's fairly impressive considering the Texans have seeded only 18 points per game to the should-be elite offenses of the Colts and Broncos. Should missed tackles and chunk gains become an issue early for Houston, the aerial aggression and elevated pace of play from the Texans could make this a surprisingly high upside environment. That said, even a tributary game environment from these two teams is unlikely to support more than one player from each team, meaning full game stacks should largely be left alone, and secondary correlations seem the optimal way of attacking this tributary. Colts at Chiefs. Kickoff Sunday, September 25th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 50 and a half. Game Overview by Hilo. Two teams on very different trajectories. The Colts have played the Texans to a tie and got shut out by the Jaguars to start the season, while the Chiefs have handled business against the Cardinals and Chargers. Indianapolis has blitzed a healthy 28.2% to start the season after blitzing at the sixth lowest frequency in 2021, likely due to the relative ineffectiveness of their 4-3 front. The Chiefs have historically, over the previous season, utilized a heavier emphasis on the run game and short-to-intermediate pass game against heavy cover 2 and cover 3 defenses, of which the Colts most definitely are. Expect Indianapolis to lead on the run for as long as possible here. How Kansas City will try to win. Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes check into Week 2 with the second-highest pass rate over expectation in the league, which has come to be expected during their tenure together. The most interesting dynamic of this matchup is the expected blitz rates from Indianapolis, as Mahomes has historically shredded the blitz. Colts defensive coordinator Gus Bradley utilized elevated blitz rates against two second-year quarterbacks over the first two weeks, which doesn't necessarily mean those rates will carry through to a matchup with the perennial blitz beater in Patrick Mahomes, but it is worth noting. Also worth noting is the absence of Darius Shaq Leonard in the middle of the field for Indianapolis, which affects the dynamism of a defense rooted in 4-3 base cover 3. All told, it's likely we see Andy Reid utilize increased emphasis on the run game against the heavy zone tendencies of the Colts, which has been the percentage solution over the previous year or so when facing heavier zone defenses. That is not to say we all of a sudden expect a run-heavy game plan from the Chiefs, simply that Reed and Mahomes have made more adjustments against Cover 2 and Cover 3 recently, relying heavily on the run game and short passing game. The backfield appears to be straightforward on the surface, with Clyde Edwards-Hilaire the lead back and primary rusher, Jarek McKinnon the primary change of pace and third down back, and Isaiah Pacheco on hand for an emergency between the tackles role. That said, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire has exactly zero red zone rush attempts through two games, McKinnon and Pacheco each have two such opportunities, clearly indicating a continued reliance on Mahomes in the pass game where it matters. The Chiefs also have averaged only 22.5 rush attempts per game, with that workload likely split between Edwards-Alaire and McKinnon on a standard week, with Pacheco joining the fray in positive game environments. 
As in, CEH's 11 running back opportunities per game is highly unlikely to see him sustain his current top 12 status moving forward. What's truly remarkable is the fact that the Chiefs have managed 71 total points scored this season on only 112 total offensive plays, which should come with little surprise considering who we're talking about here, but is remarkable nonetheless. Reed and the Chiefs hinted at a loose rotation at wide receiver after the departure of Tyreek Hill, and they've largely made good on that promise. Marquez Valdez-Scantling leads the way in snap rate at the position, followed by Juju Smith-Schuster and Nicole Hardman. Justin Watson and Sky Moore have mixed in sparingly to this point. From a macro perspective, the Chiefs have utilized heavy 12 personnel alignments through Travis Kelsey and Noah Gray, with Jody Fortson mixing in as required. Travis Kelsey's route participation was a point of concern for season-long drafters this season, but his 85.1% mark remains elite, as does his 27.1% share of the team's available air yards and 2.73 yards per route run. He is very much still the backbone of this pass offense. Behind Kelsey, Juju Smith-Schuster started off the season in a more downfield role, but has since settled back into a standard for him moderate ADOT 7.8 and moderate yards per route run 1.48 role. The matchup lines up well for both Kelsey and Juju to be the primary pass game options. Marquez Valdez-Scantling has transitioned from a premier downfield threat into a more modest upside option in Kansas City, with a moderate 8.7 ADOT and gross 0.95 yards per route run value, which is interesting considering Mecole Hardman has now taken over more of a downfield role in this offense, 16.3 ADOT and 1.48 yards per route run value. Keep an eye on this trend to see if it sticks moving forward. How Indianapolis will try to win. Let's start on the defensive side of the ball, where new defensive coordinator Gus Bradley takes over from Matt Eberflus. Bradley has transitioned this unit to a primary cover three from cover two, zone-based 4-3 scheme, intent on stopping the run first and generating pressure up front while settling into zone in the second level. The same defensive coordinator that helped establish the Legion of Boom in Seattle has evolved to include more split safeties and spot coverages. Although we figured there would be a transitionary period in the shift in defensive philosophies, and while there was always likely to be a slight dip in efficiency with the loss of Darius Shaq Leonard in the middle of the field, this defensive unit has largely underperformed expectations coming into the season over the first two weeks. On offense, the identity of the team has been built around the offensive line for the better part of the last three seasons. That's important to understand due to the declining state of said offensive line, one which PFF now has ranked down at 17th in the league. They have largely struggled in both pass protection and run blocking metrics, turning a below average 4.17 adjusted line yards metric, 28th ranked stuff rate, and allowing the 10th highest adjusted sack rate through two weeks. That has not helped an offense playing with a pocket passer towards the tail end of his career, a young and developing pass catching core, injuries to the wide receivers, and an underperforming defense. That said, we know the identity of this offensive unit run the ball through a power run game behind a supposed-to-be top offensive line, and build the pass game off play action, layered route trees, and timing. Jonathan Taylor appeared to have added a new wrinkle to his game after a week one contest that saw him garner a 61% route participation rate and seven targets, but he swiftly came crashing back to earth in that regard in week two. That said, the Colts' offense ran a startling 92 offensive plays in their week one overtime tie, which, once again, came crashing back to earth in a week two waxing at the hands of the Jaguars, of all teams. They ran only 48 offensive plays while getting shut out, and Taylor saw only 10 total running back opportunities. Woof. Based on the dynamic abilities of their coaching staff and their opponent, I tentatively expect the Colts to come out extremely run-heavy to start the game this week, 
likely returning to a Taylor-based power run game with play action dialed up from there. It is worth noting that the likely return of both Michael Pittman and Alec Pierce is sure to benefit the offense overall. Expect Taylor to see his typical 75% plus snap rate and heavy involvement to start with only game flow and an overmatched offensive line to slow him down. Naeem Hines should mix in for his typical 30% snap rate workload primarily focused on the pass game and obvious passing situations. The pure rushing matchup yields a below average 4.235 net adjusted line yards metric against the defensive front allowing only 3.56 running back yards per carry to start the season. As mentioned above, the Colts are likely to welcome back both Michael Pittman and rookie Alec Pierce this week, who are working to make their returns from a quadricep injury and concussion respectively. That should be the most welcomed of sights for a team that trotted out Ashton Doolin, Michael Strachan, and Desmond Patman last week, all of whom played 48% or more of the offensive snaps. We should expect a return to heavy 12 personnel alignments with Pittman and Paris Campbell, the primary pass catchers, and Alec Pierce and Ashton Doolin, the primary rotational wide receivers this week, with a tight end core anchored by Kylan Granson and Mo Alley-Cox. The return of Indy's primary option and X-style possession wide receiver in Michael Pittman should do wonders for the effectiveness of the offense, as the Chiefs are less likely to be able to dedicate as much attention to the box as they otherwise would without Pittman. Likeliest Game Flow Each of the two most probable game flows revolve around the primary points of attack for each respective team, with the most probable game flow involving the Chiefs dismantling an underperforming Colts defense through increased rush rates and heightened emphasis on the short-to-intermediate passing game. While not necessarily worthy of an entire tributary write-up, the Colts would love to ride their all-world running back deep into the game, mixing in a layered passing attack via the return of Michael Pittman and Alec Pierce. That said, their offensive line has vastly underperformed expectations through two weeks and now face a formidable defensive front in the Chiefs. All told, expect the Chiefs to assert control over the flow and environment via their defense and dynamic offensive design, forcing the Colts to begin shifting their offensive bias towards the air as the game plays out. This should play well into the types of routes Michael Pittman typically runs, with only his quarterback play and health likely to limit production. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. Bills at Dolphins. Kickoff Sunday, September 25th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 52. Game Overview by Hilo. Buffalo ranks first in pass rate expectation, while Miami ranks third in pass rate over expectation through two weeks. McDaniel is going to have to get creative if he wants to move the ball effectively against Buffalo's deep and athletic front six against a secondary that utilizes light nickel packages and heightened zoned concepts. The state of Miami's offensive line opens up paths to this game environment failing, and I don't know how many analysts will be open about that possibility with this game. Primary Bills pass catchers set up well to wreak havoc on Miami's light nickel-based defense. How Buffalo will try to win. We know Buffalo is going to pass the ball. And we know Stephon Diggs and Josh Allen are the players the offense is built around, but we're still waiting on the expected status of wide receiver Gabe Davis to have a clear picture on the total picture for the Bills. Should Davis miss, we're likeliest to see Jake Kumaro directly fill in on the perimeter, as he did on Monday night at 2% ownership with everyone gravitating to the two slot receivers. I digress, and am possibly still a bit salty meaning Isaiah McKenzie and Jamison Crowder are likely to continue to sap each other's snap rate and usage, opening up further room for Stephon Diggs to be the ultimate feature piece. 
Should Davis return from his ankle injury, we could see him split time with Kumaro on the perimeter, or we could see him step back into an every-down roll. Keep an eye on this situation as the week progresses, and be ready for any leverage that might open up late in the week through the uncertainty. Lead back, Devin Singletary, has played snap counts of 59 and 54% over the first two weeks of the season, seeing running back opportunity totals of 10 and 9. Fullback Reggie Gilliam has played the second most snaps at the position, ahead of both Zach Moss and rookie James Cook, but is typically utilized sparsely in the game plan. The reality of the matter is the player with the greatest rushing upside is their quarterback, Josh Allen, who has 11 carries for 66 yards and a score on the ground so far, after posting a robust 122 for 763 and 6 line on the ground in 2021. The pure rushing matchup yields a well below average 3.99 net adjusted line yards metric against a Miami team allowing just 3.06 running back yards per carry to start the year. Stefan Diggs. He's that dude. For real though. Diggs currently holds top 20 marks against man coverage per PFF and the top overall marks against zone coverage per PFF of all pass catchers on the season. His 270 receiving yards rank second in the league behind Tyree Kill and his four receiving scores lead the league. The emergence of Gabriel Davis has given the Bills a steady presence at the wide receiver two position instead of the rotation the team ran last year. His return would likely mean a slightly decreased reliance on Diggs, who was the target of 15 of Allen's 38 pass attempts on Monday. That said, the increased usage of light and nickel packages utilized by the Dolphins plays perfectly into the skill set of the all-world zone beater, Stefan Diggs. As discussed above, Expect Isaiah McKenzie and Jamison Crowder to continue sharing slot snaps regardless of the game day status of Gabe Davis. Finally, Dawson Knox has evolved into a near every down, complete tight end over the course of the previous year. Expect him to approach a 90% snap rate in competitive games for the rest of the season. The matchup sets up well over the middle for Knox to find some real estate to work. How Miami will try to win. There are two very clear driving philosophies the Dolphins operate under with Mike McDaniel at head coach amorphism, and adaptability. Their defensive style utilizes increased rates of light packages, nickel, dime, quarter, etc., and blitzes from the secondary, designed to get after the quarterback through unique packages and settle in behind the blitzing zone into either cover two or cover one base principles. On the surface, this looks like the majority of their defensive snaps come from cover two and cover one, but the fact of the matter is their defense is about as dynamic and ever-changing as they come. On offense, McDaniel has designed an offense to maximize the talents on the field, and those talents on the field consist of Tyree Kill and Jalen Waddell, amongst others, going as far as keeping his mismatched tight end either into block at heightened rates to keep space available for his dynamic wide receivers, a la George Kittle in San Francisco, or keeping him off the field entirely. Which makes sense when you think about it deeper. Yes, Mike Gusecki is a mismatch over the middle on opposing linebackers and nickel corners alike, but Tyree Kill and Jalen Waddell are bigger mismatches capable of bigger splash play potential. Definitely an interesting dynamic here with the head coach instead electing to give blocking tight end, Durham Smythe, increased run as the preferred and better pass protection entity. Miami also sports PFF's 25th ranked offensive line with glaring holes along the front, meaning getting his dynamic duo the ball in space quickly is of the utmost priority. Now it begins to make sense why this team went from run-balanced to third-in-pass rate over expectation through their offseason hiring. I'll lead with the matchup here because it's hilarious. The matchup yields a laughable 3.23 net-adjusted line yards metric against a Bills team allowing 2.94 running back yards per carry through two games, holds the second-highest stuffed rate in the league, and is allowing the fourth-fewest open field yards. 
Miami running backs are averaging 3.66 yards per carry this season. Now, how would you choose to attack here if you were Mike McDaniel? Yeah, Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle it is. If you're looking for the rest of the picture, Chase Edmonds and Raheem Mostert split snaps down the middle in Week 2 after Edmonds led the way in Week 1 with a 63% snap rate, with fullback Alec Ingold seeing a healthy 37% snap rate in each game thus far. That means the Dolphins are in 21 personnel at the highest rate in the league, again, likely due to the inability of Mike Gusecki to pass block while their fullback can block like a champ, and utilize 11 personnel at a below average rate. While the snap rates look like they leave a lot to be desired for Hill and Waddle, the two combine to account for a 59% team target market share, 49 targets on 83 Tua Tagovailoa pass attempts, 524 yards, and 5 touchdowns through just two games. This duo has been everything the organization had hoped for, and more. The 4-2-5 front-to-back defense of the Bills lacks the name value in the secondary it once had, but is built to first stop the run, then clog the passing lanes, and finally attack the point of reception. That limits the per-touch upside of Hill and Waddle, but is a slight boost to expected volume and a likely ball-out quick offensive game plan. I don't expect the Dolphins to run the football very often outside of sporadic rush attempts to keep the Bills somewhat honest. The prospect of Von Miller and Matt Milano coming off the edge and mixing up inside work against left guard Liam Eichenberg has allowed six total pressures and holds a silly 18.6 pass block grading from PFF, should have the Bills' defense salivating. McDaniel also knows this, leading me to the assertion that the Dolphins will adopt more of a ball-out quick offensive game plan through the air to Hill and Waddle which also will do well to strike in the coverage lapses of their nickel-based zone defense. Likeliest Game Flow This game has the highest total on the slate for a reason. We can expect each team to come out firing through the air, leading to an increased opportunity for splash plays and increased clock stoppages through incompletions. That said, the Bills, in their current state, are not the same defense as the Ravens, in their current state, and the Buffalo defense operates under vastly different principles than what we saw last week with Baltimore. As in, a viable and greater percentage chance to transpire than the field is likely to give credit for, outcome is for the Bills to control the game with their defense against a completely outmatched offensive line. There are likely going to be fireworks here, and there are going to be a lot of offensive plays in the game overall, but I want to also advise that there are more paths to failure than the field and other analysts are likely to give credit for throughout the week. The prevailing feeling is very likely to be, hey, the Dolphins just passed for six touchdowns, and Hill and Waddle just combined for 361 yards and four scores. How can they possibly fail here? Take that thought and see if you see any reasons that they might fail. The only thing that we can say with a high degree of certainty is that this game environment is going to start off hot, with the football being flung around the field with little regard. After that, the game tree opens up rather wide, with everything from a Bills waxing to a back-and-forth shootout-style game environment to both offenses struggling, as could be the case if Gabe Davis misses this one, keep that in mind when building this week. One last note, the Bills have allowed a combined 17 points to the defending Super Bowl champions and the defending one seed out of the AFC. Lions at Vikings, kickoff Sunday, September 25th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under, 52.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. Minnesota should look more like the team we saw in Week 1 than the team we saw get trampled by the Eagles. The Lions play aggressively on both sides of the ball, which helps set the tone for high-scoring games. Both teams are top 10 in the league in pace of play. 
Both defenses have shown the ability to make plays, but also shown that they are very susceptible to miscues through two weeks. How Detroit will try to win Detroit appears to have turned the corner and be a different team than the bottom feeder we have seen in recent years. Dan Campbell's energy shows up on the team in all areas as they play extremely hard and have had two impressive showings to start the season. Their season opening loss to the Eagles looks much better now after seeing how the Eagles demolished the Vikings on Monday Night Football in Week 2. Now the Lions head on the road for their first divisional matchup of the season against the Vikings, who are playing on a short week. Perhaps the most impressive and noteworthy thing about Detroit's start has been the pace with which they are playing. The Lions are currently leading the league in situation-neutral pace of play and fifth in overall pace of play, which is seconds per snap. They have done this while playing with a very balanced, league-average pass rate and are doing a tremendous job of mixing things up and using their personnel well, including multiple running backs. Amon Ross St. Brown has obviously been terrific as he continues his ascension to top-tier NFL wide receiver status, but Jared Goff's play has been outstanding through two weeks, with 471 passing yards, a 6-to-1 TD-to-interception ratio, and a 100.15 QB rating. Through two weeks, the Vikings' defense once again looks like it's not one to fear, and the Lions do not have the feeling of a team that plays with fear in any regard. The Lions' defense is not elite, so they know they need to score points. We should expect more of the same from Detroit this week, with a balanced attack that plays to their personnel's strengths. Short and intermediate throws to the middle of the field and flats, Amon Ross St. Brown and DeAndre Swift in space, Jamal Williams between the tackles, and occasional shots downfield to DJ Shark. The Lions will play fast and attempt to strike first, isolating their skill players in space against a Vikings team that struggled containing the Eagles' weapons on Monday night. How Minnesota will try to win Minnesota was riding a high after stomping the bully of their division in Week 1 with their 23-7 victory over the Packers. That feeling came to a screeching halt in Week 2 as the Vikings were boat-raced by the Eagles in a game that was nowhere near as close as the 24-7 score would indicate. The Vikings' offense barely averaged over 4 yards per play and routinely looked overwhelmed by the Eagles in every phase. Meanwhile, the Vikings' defense gave up 24 first-half points to the Eagles before tightening up in the second half. Although that improved performance likely had more to do with the Eagles being more conservative, knowing that the Vikings weren't going to be able to put up three more scoring drives without some mistakes and help from the Eagles. New head coach Kevin O'Connell has the Vikings playing with a top 10 pace of play and throwing the ball with the fourth highest pass rate over expectation in the league. The struggles against the Eagles were alarming, but it's highly likely that many teams will have those same struggles this season. This Lions defense blitzes at the fourth highest rate in the league. 41.7% through two weeks, and on plays that they are not blitzing, they are usually sitting in zone concepts and coverage. From a schematic perspective, this should play very well for the Vikings, as they should be able to get the ball to Dalvin Cook in space in the screen game against blitzes or hot routes to their wide receivers, who can win quickly against man coverage. When the Lions elect to play zone, the Vikings should be able to use motion and creative formations to get Justin Jefferson free in space against linebackers like they did in week one against the heavy zone scheme of the Packers. The Vikings have also spoken this week about the need to get Cook and the running game going, which should be on the table against the Lions' run defense, which has given up the fifth highest yards per carry in the league through two weeks. Likeliest Game Flow This game has the ingredients for a shootout if things hold as planned. The Lions' pace and aggressiveness offensively is not only optimal in today's NFL, it also raises the volatility of every game they play in. They have explosive players who can make plays, while Jared Goff is also capable of huge errors that give short fields to his opponents and spur the pace of games as well. 
Likewise, the aggressiveness of the Lions' defense is likely to either force mistakes from Kirk Cousins or get them burned quickly by the elite playmakers of the Vikings. Both teams are playing at a top 10 pace of play, and Campbell's aggressive mindset shows in everything the Lions do, and Kevin O'Connell is a sharp young coach who understands the importance of pace and aggressiveness in the passing game. These ingredients together have the makings of a delicious cocktail of yards and points, with the potential for explosive offensive plays or game-breaking defensive plays seemingly around every corner. Get your popcorn ready. Ravens at Patriots. Kickoff Sunday, September 25th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under 43.5. Game Overview by Pappy. The best DFS play from this game is probably a defense. The Patriots' wide receivers are all cheap if you think their game plan will be to pass. The Ravens are highly influenced by game script. The Ravens' passing game has upside, with a lower-than-normal chance to reach their ceiling. How Baltimore will try to win. The Ravens must be the maddest team in the NFL, after blowing what seemed like an insurmountable advantage in the fourth quarter last week. We might not see another three-touchdown lead evaporate that late in a game this year. Fortunately for Baltimore, they play in the AFC North a division no one wants to win, so they didn't lose any ground despite the disappointing loss. Even so, history shows there is a big difference in playoff made percentage between 2-1 and one and 1-2 one teams, making this a meaningful early season game for a team with Super Bowl aspirations. Jim Harbaugh has long been one of the better coaches in the NFL and is willing to scheme his offense around the talent on his roster. It's easy to forget Lamar Jackson was a raw QB prospect coming out of Louisville with a play style that typically doesn't succeed in the NFL. Harbaugh deserves a lot of credit for adapting to his new QB and designing an offense that fits his strengths. The Ravens' offense attacks in a unique way, which allows them to play with the mindset of, you have to adjust to us, rather than trying to adapt their game plan based on the defense. The Patriots' defense has been solid against the pass, 11th in DVOA, and middling against the run, 17th in DVOA, to start the year, while holding the Dolphins and Steelers under 21 points. There is no reason to think the Patriots' defense will tilt the Ravens away from their preferred approach of using Lamar Jackson as a hybrid quarterback-slash-running back who stresses the defense with his legs, creating open throws down the field that don't require him to be as accurate as other quarterbacks. There may be some indication that the Ravens are looking to be more judicious with Jackson's rushing attempts, as he saw only six and nine carries in the first two games. However, the six carries came in a game that was never in doubt, and the nine carries were enough to post 119 yards. The Patriots have recently favored man coverage, and this could be Lamar's first double-digit carry game of the year if Belichick lets his defense turn their back. The Ravens want to play at an above-average pace, 13th situation neutral, but are willing to slow down, 20th in the second half, when winning. They demonstrated this tendency in both games this year when they took large leads into halftime. The Ravens will stay aggressive as long as the game is competitive, but are happy to take the air out of the ball with a lead. The Ravens have scored 62 points this year but only three points in the fourth quarter and 21 points in the second half. Expect the Ravens to try and establish another early lead before becoming more conservative and hoping to grind down the clock for an easy win. How New England will try to win. Bill Belichick doesn't need Tom Brady as long as he faces Mitch Trubisky every week. The Patriots barely staved off going 0-2 for the first time in recent history by holding the pedestrian Steelers offense to 14 points. New England's offense didn't do much either, barely mustering enough to win against a defense that was without its game-changing best player, T.J. Watt. The Patriots showed their trademark adaptability and reprised their typical throw-first game plan against the Steelers. The box score will show 35 passes versus 31 runs, but 8 of those runs came on the final drive as the Patriots were bleeding clock, 
and seven of those 31 carries were from Mac Jones. The Ravens have been respectable, 14th in DVOA, against the run, but lit on fire, 25th in DVOA, through the air so far this season. That number is influenced by the 469 yards the Dolphins just dropped on them, but it's easy to forget that Joe Elite Dragon Flacco also hung 309 yards on this defense week one, albeit on 59 attempts in a game that was never close. On paper, the Ravens' secondary is strong, universally ranked in the top half of the league preseason, but through two weeks they've been a disappointing unit. The Patriots want to run, but they're willing to attack their opponent's weakness, and the Ravens' secondary has been vulnerable. The Ravens' relative weakness on defense elevates the chance that the Patriots stick with their pass-leaning game plan from last week. The Patriots have opened the season playing with a below-average pace in all situations, leading to a slow total pace, 26th overall. It's worth noting that they want to play slightly faster, 20th situation neutral pace, but are one of the most willing teams to fall on the ball when ahead. It's also worth pointing out that the Patriots played at a plotting pace week one, before playing at an average pace week two. They might be a slightly below average pace offense, rather than a bottom of the league in pace offense, but either way, no one will confuse them with the Chargers. Expect the Patriots to come out leaning on the pass to try and take a lead, before turtling to run out the clock late if they are successful. Likeliest game flow. This game has one of the lower totals, 43.5, on the slate. It's expected to be a matchup between a struggling offense and an offense on the road facing a tough defense. Not only could both offenses struggle in this game, if either team takes a significant lead, they'll be more than happy to run, grind clock, and force the other team to respond before becoming aggressive. This type of setup creates a lot of paths to fantasy disappointment. Any of these game flows, both offenses struggle, the Ravens win confidently, or the Patriots win confidently, could lead to disappointing box scores. The most likely game flow is one of the three options above, with the most likely of the three options being a game where the Patriots' inept offense fails to exploit the Ravens' secondary, the Patriots' strong defense limits the Ravens' explosive offense, creating a lackluster scoring environment, and producing a game that the Ravens win without posting strong fantasy lines. Tributary The tributary that makes this game exciting would be a game flow where the Patriots come out passing and are able to take an early lead. Imagine a game where the Patriots get the ball and shred the Ravens' secondary on their first two possessions, going up 14-0. The Ravens haven't faced an early game deficit this year, but they have been a reactionary team, and there is a good chance in the face of being down two scores, they would play at an elevated pace. In this scenario, the game could turn into a back-and-forth affair, with the Patriots' offense exploiting the Ravens' secondary and the Ravens' explosive offense making big plays in return. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Bengals at the Jets kick off Sunday, September 25th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 45. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Cincinnati needs to figure things out quickly or they could dig themselves a hole they can't get out of. The Jets have been aggressive and fun through two weeks, and are quickly getting their young, explosive skill players more involved. Much of this game's potential will be decided by the ability of the Bengals' offensive line to provide pass protection and how Zach Taylor approaches play calling. Joe Flacco and Joe Burrow are currently first and second in the NFL in pass attempts. How Cincinnati will try to win The Bengals have had a tough start this season, losing both of their games on walk-off field goals to teams that they should have had the advantages over. 
As they fight through this Super Bowl hangover, they will have to look in the mirror at things they can do to get back to the magic that took them to their run through the AFC to end last season. One of the biggest issues has clearly been their offensive line play. Through two games, Joe Burrow has taken a whopping 13 sacks. The Bengals put a lot of resources into improving their offensive line this offseason, as that was their biggest issue against the Rams in their Super Bowl loss. However, things haven't come together quite yet. Part of the issue has been their opponents to start the year each featured one of their premier pass rushers in the game, T.J. Watt of the Steelers and Micah Parsons of the Cowboys. Those players individually do so many things to disrupt offenses and create chaos, while simultaneously drawing attention away from their teammates to help them create pressure as well. Luckily for the Bengals, this week the Jets have no such player of that caliber. Through two games, the Jets have only three sacks while allowing Lamar Jackson to throw for three touchdowns and giving up 8.5 yards per pass attempt to Jacoby Brissett. As for method of approach, the Bengals still provide us with some uncertainty. They have run at a very high rate on first downs to start the year, and their running game has not been very efficient, averaging only three yards per carry on 49 rush attempts, not counting Joe Burrow scrambles. It is hard to tell, however, if this play calling is how they truly want to play or if it was a function of trying to deal with the elite pass rushes they have faced. My lean is that it is more of the latter, with the Bengals having an opportunity this week to open things up against a weaker pass defense, especially after seeing the results of two poor offensive showings with their run-heavy approach. T. Higgins returned and played a good game in Week 2, so a full week of planning and practicing for the offense, and a desire to get back to who they are should give them a chance to be the offense that everyone expected to see after tearing things up to end 2021. How New York will try to win The Jets are sneakily one of the more fun teams in the league right now, with Joe Flacco throwing the ball 103 times through two games, 14 more attempts than anyone else in the league. The Jets are also playing at the fastest rate in the league through two games, as their best means of moving the ball so far has been through tempo and aggressiveness. This week, they face the Bengals, who are top five in the league in both rush defense DVOA and yards per carry allowed. Last year, the Jets were able to pull off an upset of the Bengals and had a lot of success throwing the ball to running backs in the short area and letting them make plays after the catch. Michael Carter and Ty Johnson combined for 14 receptions, 166 yards, and a touchdown through the air in addition to 92 yards and a touchdown rushing. While we shouldn't expect an exact replica of that game plan, both of these teams have the same coaching staff as they had last year, and it is reasonable to think that the Jets will look for ways to exploit the Bengals similarly to how they did in 2021. The Jets have a plethora of young players who are explosive with the ball in their hands and capable of beating a defense. They have three receivers who complement each other well, two of which are just coming into their own in Garrett Wilson and Elijah Moore, as well as two capable and explosive young running backs in Brees Hall and Michael Carter. Head coach Robert Sala has an aggressive personality and coming off a big comeback victory in Cleveland, I would not expect the Jets to go back into their shell. Instead, I think they can and will be aggressive from the outset of the game, knowing their defense may struggle to keep the Bengals under 24 points, and therefore, they will need to be aggressive in putting up points themselves. Likeliest Game Flow The most likely outcome of this game is that the Bengals are able to create a lead through the use of their elite playmakers, and the Jets are able to move the ball with volume, 
but unable to keep pace on the scoreboard due to efficiency issues. This could very well be a game with a lot of yardage gained, but drives ending in turnovers and field goals. While both teams have a high volume of pass attempts through two weeks, that is largely due to the fact that both of them have been trailing for the entire game. It is uncertain how either of these teams will operate with a lead, although it seems likely that the Bengals, who are most likely to build a lead, would play conservatively once ahead, as Zach Taylor doesn't seem to really turn things up unless he's forced to by the opponent, or is trying to run up a score on a divisional foe. See Steelers and Ravens games in 2021. The Raiders at the Titans kick off Sunday, September 25th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 45.5. Game Overview by Hilo Two teams at the opposite end of the spectrum in how they approach games. Las Vegas plays at a moderate pace, top 10 in both first-half pace of play and situation-neutral pace of play, with elevated pass rates, 70.94% overall pass rate, and 6th highest pass rate over expectation. Tennessee plays at a snail's pace, 28th ranked first-half pace of play, and 26th ranked situation-neutral pace of play, with elevated rush rates, low 53.1% overall pass rate, and 5th lowest pass rate over expectation. The game environment here has many paths toward a messy environment, and very few paths toward something noteworthy for fantasy. How Las Vegas will try to win. The Raiders have been forced into pass-heavy game plans of the quick-hitting variety, primarily due to the shortcomings of their offensive line, PFF's second-worst unit to start the year, highlighted by Carr's 2.44 second time to throw in 2022 compared to 2.72, 2.77, and 2.75 seconds over the previous three seasons. Their offense is primarily based out of 11 personnel, with sparse usage of 21 and 12 personnel. Starting slot wide receiver Hunter Renfro left Week 2's overtime loss with a concussion sustained on the final play of the game and is currently in the league's concussion protocol, which could alter the game plan for the Raiders should he miss. That said, Renfro's absence would likelier influence team target market shares as opposed to changing their game plan entirely. Josh Jacobs maintains his position as the lead back in a role that historically affords more pass game usage than he is currently seeing to start the year. Jacobs ran 15 routes in week 1 and 20 routes in week 2, seeing only one target in each week. Jacobs' career yards per route run ranks in the top 6 at the position since 2015. All of that to say, there is room for his pass game involvement to increase, particularly if Hunter Renfro misses Week 3. Furthermore, Jacobs' involvement increased in Week 2 when Brandon Bolden was forced to miss, increasing his snap rate from 60% to 72%, borderline elite. Expect fullback Jacob Johnson and change of pace third down back Amir Abdullah to mix in sparingly. The pure rushing matchup is far from ideal, yielding a paltry 4.175 net adjusted line yards metric behind PFF's 31st ranked offensive line. Finally, the absence of Harold Landry is a big hit to the Titans' defensive front against the run. Shane Bowen and the Titans have transformed their defense over the previous two seasons, investing heavy draft capital in the secondary and attacking the pass rush heavily through free agency. 
Bowen's unit employs heavy blitz packages and subsequent cover one utilization, meaning Raiders pass catchers should find themselves in man coverage good percentage of the time this week. Enter Devontae Adams, who holds the best rating against man coverage of all wide receivers since he entered the league in 2014. By all accounts, this is a get-right spot for Adams after being blanketed in Week 2. The heavy 11 personnel rate from the Las Vegas offense has meant Mac Hollins and Hunter Renfro have been responsible for elevated snap counts of their own alongside Adams, with the only other wide receiver to see a single offensive snap this season being Tyron Johnson with a whopping three offensive snaps. Should Renfro fail to gain clearance from his concussion, expect Keelan Cole to step into Renfro's slot role. Furthering our discussion of personnel that crush man coverage, Darren Waller ranked first in the league amongst tight ends against primary man coverage schemes in 2020 before struggling through multiple injuries in 2021. How Tennessee will try to win The Titans' offensive game plan revolves around Derrick Henry and their offensive line, as it has for the previous four seasons under head coach Mike Vrabel. That said, Derrick Henry is coming off a lost season due to injury and has struggled with efficiency to start the year. Tennessee's offensive line is also a case of haves and have-nots, as Nate Davis and Taylor Lewan are two of PFF's highest-rated offensive linemen in the league. Taylor Lewan was carted off in Week 2 and is likely to miss the remainder of the season. Official injury report has yet to be released as of this writing. While Aaron Brewer and Nicholas Petit-Frere, 35.3 pass blocking grade over the first two games of 2022 per PFF, have been liabilities thus far. It will be interesting to see how the Titans adjust their game plan with an underperforming offensive line already dealing with major injuries against a Raiders opponent that has ceded just 3.79 yards per carry to the opposing backfields to start the season. Considering the complete overhaul of the pass-catching core this offseason, Robert Woods, Traylon Burks, and Austin Hooper are all starters new to the team this year, leaving only Nick Westbrook-Ekine as the only returning starting pass-catcher and the coaching staff, it is likely we see this team continue to approach games with a ground-biased plan of attack, even through the injuries. Derrick Henry is still being treated like the king of 2020 and 2021, seeing a running back opportunity on a massive 50% of his offensive snaps over two games, 35 total running back opportunities on 70 offensive snaps. When Henry is on the field, it is a high likelihood that he is touching the football, Furthermore, it's fair to expect Henry to see borderline workhorse usage in neutral to positive game script, but the lack of receiving usage means he must be treated as the yardage and touchdown back until we see more utilization through the air. That makes Henry a wide range of outcomes play on a standard week, one that could just as easily rack up 35 touches as he could be held to under 15. The matchup is neutral to negative at best against a defensive front that has held opposing backs to just 3.79 yards per carry and ranks as the top overall defense against power runs, runs out of the heavy packages aimed at getting back the downfield quickly to start the season. It's not a positive development considering the Titans utilize a power run-based offensive game plan. Expect some combination of Dontrell Hilliard, if he returns to game action, and Hassan Haskins to fulfill the primary change of pace and third down role behind Henry. The pass offense is a little harder to dissect for the Titans, considering the blowout in Week 2 and the new pass-catching core. What we do know is that it is not the primary focus of the offense, and the team utilizes heavy 12 personnel alignments. Robert Woods and Nick Westbrook-Ekine have operated as the two top wide receivers to this point, 
each being held to 71% snap rates or below in Week 1 before seeding additional snaps in the Week 2 blowout. Rookie Traylon Burks, listed as a starter on the depth chart, saw only 37% and 45% of the offensive snaps in the first two weeks, but has been targeted on a massive 36.7% of his routes rung to go along with a route participation rate jumping from 37.1% in Week 1 to 72.7% in Week 2. It appears the electric rookie is on his way to a true breakout, but the timing of that breakout is likely in the hands of his coaching staff. Fellow rookie Kyle Phillips and journeyman Cody Hollister played well behind the top trio and should continue mixing in for a handful of snaps each week. Josh Gordon was activated ahead of week two and played 18 offensive snaps, all coming after the game was well out of reach. Finally, Jeff Swaim and Austin Hooper operate as the top two tight ends in a heavy 12 personnel offense, each likely to see 60-70% to 70% of the offensive snaps on a standard week. The Raiders' heavy zone defensive principles have allowed them to hold opponents to just 6.9 yards per completion to start the season, after seeding a fourth-ranked 9.5 yards per completion in 2021. Traylon Burks and his elite yak potential are the clear path of least resistance through the air, but it remains to be seen what his utilization will look like. Likeliest Game Flow We know with a high degree of certainty that the Raiders will start the game with a pass-heavy approach, while the Titans will start the game with a run-heavy approach, meaning the eventual game flow will depend greatly on which team is able to assert themselves first. As in, the Titans are likely to control the flow if they achieve some level of success on the ground, or through their pass rush, while the Raiders are likely to control the flow if they can get the Titans on their heels early through the air or clamp down up front against Derrick Henry. This leaves the game environment with a wide range of potential outcomes, each of which is relatively easy to build around should you decide to attack this game. Overall, expect a moderate to below average pace with little room for above average total offensive snaps to be run, leaving very little room for the game environment to completely take off. As such, it would be wise to limit exposure to this one to one-offs or correlated secondary pairings, if going here at all. The Eagles at the Commanders kick off Sunday, September 25th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 47. Game Overview by Hilo. The Eagles hold the second-fastest first-half pace of play and the slowest second-half pace of play, indicative of intent versus game flow over the first two weeks. The Commanders hold the league's fifth-highest blitz rate and lowest quarterback hurry rate through two weeks. Not a great combination. Both teams rank in the top five in plays per game through two weeks, a testament to the first-half pace of play shown by the Eagles and the pass-heavy approach from the Commanders. This game environment could turn into one of the top environments on the slate if the Commanders can muster some more second-half gusto. How Philadelphia Will Try to Win Nick Sirianni's Eagles are thought of as this run-first offense that keeps you on your heels through pace. While that is not far from the truth, it seems as if that statement is simply scratching the surface as to the depth of this offensive unit this season. The primarily 11 and 12 personnel based offense utilizes their mobile quarterback, the top ranked offensive line in the league per PFF, a three-way stable of dynamic running backs, one of the most athletic tight ends in the game, and now an elite wide receiver core consisting of the electric A.J. Brown, dynamic second-year pro Devonta Smith, and burner slotman Kez Watkins to layer its attack through misdirection, brute force, and athleticism. 
Hertz has been able to complete 70% of his passes this year with top five marks and average air yards per attempt, meaning he's been both precise and capable of inflicting chunk damage all at once. Basically, this offense can beat you at all three levels on the field in any given play. On the ground, quarterback Jalen Hurts is really the team's lead running back, with a stable of three relatively dynamic backs behind him. Miles Sanders leads the team in rushing with a healthy 5.87 yards per carry on 30 carries, good for 176 yards on the ground through two games. Sanders has played just over 50% of the offensive snaps each week thus far, spelled frequently by both Kenneth Gainwell and Boston Scott in the backfield. As far as fantasy expectations go, it has never been about expected overall rushing success with this team under Sirianni and Hertz. It's simply a matter of a four-way split in expected workload on the ground. For example, Hertz leads the team in rushing scores, Sanders leads the team in rushing yards, and all four of Hertz, Sanders, Gainwell, and Scott have found paint in the first two weeks of the season. Hertz 4, Sanders 1, Gainwell 1, Scott 1. The matchup on the ground yields an elite 4.69 net-adjusted line yards metric against a commander's defense overperforming to start the season, considering their injuries to their first and second level. The addition of A.J. Brown to this offseason was one of the gets of the summer, completing a dynamic skill position roster including a downfield and mobile passer, elite speed at all positions, the top-ranked offensive line, and elite yards after the catch ability. The technical aspects of the route running of Brown, Smith, Goddard, and even Watkins is one of the more under-discussed aspects of this pass-catching unit, but something that mustn't go unnoticed moving forward. So while the team carries elite downfield chops, their 8th-ranked yards after the catch value and 5th-ranked average intended yards are a dangerous combination. Second-year wide receiver Devonta Smith has played all but four offensive snaps to start the season, with newcomer Alpha, in quotes because Smith could be the Alpha on most NFL rosters, A.J. Brown plays almost 90% of the offensive snaps weekly. Tight end Dallas Goddard has developed into an all-around, near-every-down NFL tight end, and downfield burner slotman Kez Watkins typically handles 55-60% to of the offensive snaps. Washington's blitz-heavy, 41.5% through two games, and man-heavy defense have allowed a startling 9.2 average depth of target, third deepest, and third most air yards to date in 2022, including five passing scores and a minuscule 1.2% hurry rate. I spoke to the injuries to the Washington defensive line and linebacker unit above, which highlights the struggles generated by heavy blitz rates and borderline zero pressure rates thus far. How Washington will try to win. The Commanders boast a top 10 offensive line and have attacked with pace, 15th ranked situation neutral pace of play, and elevated pass rates, 7th ranked pass rate of expectation through two weeks, which makes sense considering the mix of talent and athleticism they suddenly find themselves with on the offensive side of the ball. From an offensive scheme standpoint, the Commanders utilize heavy 11 personnel rates as their base, with only sparse rates of 12 personnel heavy sets thrown in. That tells me that the heavy pass rates we've seen thus far are likely to stick moving forward for an offense designed to stretch the field both horizontally and vertically. I spoke to the fact that I identified the changes present in this offense as a signal as opposed to noise leading up to week two, something I still don't think the field has fully embraced yet, as in, who wants to click the names of Washington commanders for their rosters? I digress. The preseason, off-the-field injury to Brian Robinson has left this backfield in a classic one-two punch, split between Antonio Gibson and J.D. McKissick, 
While Washington's offensive line currently checks in as PFF's seventh-ranked unit, the primary strength is in pass protection. The unit has generated a modest 4.28 adjusted line yards value, while the matchup yields a strong on paper 4.82 net adjusted line yards metric against a Philadelphia defensive line that has been suspect to the power run game. The biggest risk here is the combination of split workload and an Eagles defense capable of cracking down on the run in the end zone, meaning we're left with a backfield with little in the way of guaranteed points. The focus of the Washington offense has fallen on Carson Wentz's shoulders through two weeks, who miraculously checks into week three second in the league in passing, having thrown for over 300 yards in each game and combining for seven total touchdown tosses. The spread nature of the Washington offense has meant Curtis Samuel currently leads the team in receiving, with an established underneath role akin to Debo Samuels in San Francisco. Jahan Dotson and Terry McLaurin man the perimeter in near every down rolls, while tight end Logan Thomas has made a quick recovery from a torn ACL suffered late last season to return as the primary tight end. Thomas's snap rate jumped from 62% in Week 1 to 73% in Week 2, indicating that he is getting closer to his near-every-down role of seasons past. It's borderline futile to project what defensive philosophy we'll see out of Philadelphia this week, as defensive coordinator Jonathan Gannon has the tools and personnel to mix coverages with the best of them, with Cover 2 Zone, Cover 3 Zone, and Cover 1 Man his preferred defensive alignments. Cover 1 alignments would likely leave top 5 corner Darius Slay on Terry McLaurin. Jahan Dotson's downfield, 15.4 ADOT, 12th in the league, and red zone rolls, 3 touchdowns through 2 games, are mighty tempting against either zone or James Bradbury coverage. Most notably, Dodson currently ranks as PFF's wide receiver 14 against man coverages, while Curtis Samuel currently ranks as PFF's wide receiver 13 against the zone in 2022. Likeliest Game Flow It is likeliest we see the Philadelphia offensive line assert control over the flow of the game from the jump, meaning the Eagles are likely to move the ball as they please to start the game. Considering the high first-half tempo from the Eagles and elevated pass rates exhibited by the Commanders, that sets up for an interesting combination of pace and stoppages that should lead to the opportunity for this game environment to turn into one of the top environments on the slate. The biggest concern, at least from a fantasy perspective, becomes the concentration of the offense, or lack thereof, between these two squads, but there should be plenty of volume present. That said, there are likely to be a few fantasy-worthy scores to come from this one. Furthermore, any potential tributary game flow is likely to see similar outcomes to the most likely scenario in volume, in that both the commanders and the eagles would be unlikely to alter their primary plan of attack enough to introduce numerous variables. That means we're left with high-confidence volume from the environment itself. The trick then becomes narrowing down where the production is likeliest to come from. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Jaguars at the Chargers. Kickoff Sunday, September 25th at 4.05 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 47. Game Overview by Mike Johnson We still don't know for sure who the Jaguars are, but this week will be a great litmus test. There are several key factors clearly working in favor of the Chargers. The strength of the Chargers' offense matches up perfectly with the path of least resistance of the Jaguars' defense. 
If the Jaguars can score some first-half points and keep this game competitive, the tempo could really turn up in the second half. How Jacksonville will try to win The Jaguars have had a solid start to the season, losing a close road game in Washington in Week 1, and then stomping the injury-ridden Colts in Week 2. However, we still don't truly know what to make of this new-look Jacksonville team, as they have yet to face a top-tier team at full strength. We won't have to wait much longer, however, as the Jaguars are set for a cross-country road trip to face a Chargers team that is one of the favorites in the AFC and is coming off a 10-day rest following a tough loss to the Chiefs that should have been a huge statement road victory. Jacksonville is passing the ball on 58% of their plays, which is right around league average and has operated with a percentage point of their expected pass rate based on the game situations they have been in. The Jags have operated at a slower-than-league-average pace of play, both in terms of overall pace and situation-neutral pace. However, the Jaguars' offense appears to have turned a corner after a miserable 2021 season, as they have scored over 20 points in consecutive games to start the season after doing so only five times in 17 games last year. Christian Kirk, the prized free agent acquisition from the offseason, has emerged as the alpha wide receiver for Trevor Lawrence, while fellow newcomers Evan Ingram and Zay Jones have quickly established rapport and become trusted options as well. The Jaguars' backfield also appears strong and has a nice one-two punch in James Robinson and Travis Etienne, with Robinson icing the game away last week with 25 total touches, and Etienne appearing to be primarily the third down and hurry-up option, with occasional early down work mixed in. This will be a tough test for Jacksonville against a Chargers defense that has a ferocious pass rush and opportunistic secondary, and just held Patrick Mahomes to a pedestrian 235 passing yards in Week 2. The weakness of the Chargers defense is their run defense, which currently ranks 30th in yards allowed per carry. Unfortunately for the Jaguars, they currently have PFF's 30th graded run-blocking offensive line and are 22nd in yards per carry in their own right. The Jaguars will likely try to control the game on the ground, but will also look to use screens and short to intermediate area passing to move the chains and keep Justin Herbert off the field. Trevor Lawrence currently ranks 6th in the NFL with a whopping 9.8 yards per pass attempt when using play action, something the Jaguars will certainly use to try to open up holes in the back end of the defense and to keep the Chargers' pass rush at bay. How Los Angeles will try to win The Chargers appeared to be every bit a contender in the AFC as they controlled the majority of their Thursday night game against the Chiefs in Week 2. Unfortunately, a costly goal-line interception that was returned 100 yards for a touchdown was the difference in the game and kept the Chargers from getting that monkey off their back. In addition to that mistake, head coach Brandon Staley appears to have reverted away from the aggressive fourth-down play calling we saw from him in 2021, with the Chargers punting away several times in the midfield area with short yardages needed for first downs. While some may say that this conservative approach is what gave them the chance to have that late lead, it is also true that the conservative approach kept the Chiefs within striking distance rather than giving the Chargers a chance to pull away. Regarding their approach to this particular game, the Chargers appear to be working on all cylinders in many of the same areas as we saw in 2021, outside of fourth down decision making. After passing at a high rate and playing with tempo last year, the Chargers are 6th in situation-neutral pace and 5th in pass rate over expectation through two weeks. 
in spite of playing the last six quarters without the services of all-pro wide receiver Keenan Allen. The Chargers' run game has struggled so far this year, but their passing game continues to be a top-five unit with Justin Herbert under center. They now face a Jaguars defense that looked terrific against a depleted Colts receiving core and an over-the-hill Matt Ryan, but was torched by Carson Wentz in Week 1 to the tune of 337 passing yards and four touchdown passes. The Jaguars' defense also just bottled up Jonathan Taylor and is PFF's third-graded unit in run defense. The Chargers will clearly be able, and for that matter be encouraged by their opponent, to be who they want to be and to play with their normal pace and play-calling splits. They should be able to move the ball well, as they have the first two weeks, and just need to clean up a few mistakes to have their first 30-point game of the season. Likeliest Game Flow the Chargers are clearly the superior on-paper team and most likely to control the game with their extra rest, home game and lack of travel, and great matchup for their greatest strength. The biggest threat to the game flow and tempo of this game is the health of Justin Herbert. In their Week 2 loss to the Chiefs, Herbert suffered a fracture to his rib cartilage in the fourth quarter. He did re-enter the game and made some huge plays down the stretch. He will certainly play in this game, but his health may affect the play calling and encourage the Chargers to be more conservative, especially if they do not feel threatened by the Jaguars. In an otherwise outstanding setup for the Chargers offense, that is the biggest concern I have about this game's potential for a high-scoring affair. The Jaguars offense will need to prove itself as capable against a high-level defense if this game is to truly have increased tempo and play volume. The Chargers' front four is outstanding at getting pressure on the quarterback without the assistance of blitzes, ranking 6th in PFF pass rush grade while only blitzing on 20% of plays. If the Chargers' defense is able to dominate the game and keep the Jaguars from putting together drives, Los Angeles will likely take their foot off the gas earlier than usual to keep Herbert from taking unnecessary hits. The Rams at the Cardinals kick off Sunday, September 25th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 48.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Matchups on both sides will encourage these teams to put the ball in the hands of their quarterbacks early and often. Arizona blitz tendencies leave them vulnerable to a Rams passing offense that is built to exploit it. The Rams' lack of ability to create pressure on the quarterback so far this year could be problematic in containing Kyler Murray. Neither team is likely to have much success running the ball, and both teams project to increase their tempo from what we've seen in the first two weeks. How Los Angeles will try to win The Rams got back on track in Week 2, dominating an overmatched Falcons team for most of the game before giving them a glimmer of hope late due to the lack of aggressiveness and a few self-imposed mistakes. After looking completely overmatched against the Bills, the Rams looked more like their old selves as they scored 31 points in that Week 2 game. However, they still have a ways to go before we can start comparing them to last year's offensive juggernaut that won the Super Bowl. Week 3 may be just what they need, as they face a Cardinals defense that ranks 32nd in pass defense DVOA, according to Football Outsiders, and also ranks 32nd in PFF's coverage grades. Adding fuel to that fire, the Cardinals are blitzing at a league-leading 50% rate, and Matthew Stafford has historically been terrific against the blitz, including last year when he averaged a massive 8.6 passing yards per attempt and had a 7-to-1 TD-to-interception ratio across three meetings with these Cardinals.
The Rams are actually passing more to start this season than they did last year, with their offense throwing at a top 10 pass rate over expectation through two weeks. However, their pace of play has dropped considerably this year, as they are currently 29th in the league in situation-neutral pace of play, after ranking 4th in that same category last year. It is still early in the season, so those trends could be just the fluky result of a small sample size. The Rams were likely trying to slow the game down and keep Josh Allen off the field in Week 1, and then trying to ice the game against an inferior opponent in the Falcons in Week 2. This week should give us a better idea of whether this slower pace is more signal or noise in regards to their approach this year, as a matchup against a competitive divisional foe who they are tied with in the standings should encourage them to push the tempo and keep their foot on the gas. In regards to play calling, we are likely to see a pass-happy Rams approach this week due to the advantages in the passing game laid out above as well as the struggles that the Rams' 29th graded rushing offense by PFF have had to start the year. The blitzing Cardinals are going to leave Cooper Cup in man coverage and allow Matthew Stafford to pick them apart on the back end, so there will be little reason for the Rams to move to a more balanced approach in this matchup. How Arizona will try to win Lucky doesn't really begin to describe what we saw from the Cardinals last week. The Raiders got about as little as they possibly could out of their performance, while the Cardinals were able to squeeze every last ounce out of it to pull off an improbable comeback and win in overtime. Multiple Raiders, miscues, and conservative play calling kept the Cardinals in the game, with the Cardinals also converting several fourth downs and two-point conversions in the fourth quarter, some of which were aided by penalties and some of which were created by Kyler Murray playing Madden on an actual NFL field. Perhaps the most damning thing about the Cardinals' outlook is the fact that none of their actual success appeared to have come from schemes or concepts that they were implementing. Rather, every high-leverage play had more of a nothing's-open-let's-see-what-Kyler-can-create feel to it. While that worked against a Raiders team that wasn't blitzing often and couldn't get a quick pass rush or have the athletes to track Murray down, something tells me that Aaron Donald and the Rams will provide a few more problems in Week 3. The Cardinals rank 29th in rushing offense DVOA and 27th in run-blocking grades by PFF while the Rams are first in run defense DVOA and first in PFF's rush defense grades. The Cardinals have thrown the ball on 68% of their plays so far this season. With the difficulty of this running game matchup and starting running back James Conner battling an ankle injury, it seems like that number will only increase this week. The Rams have actually struggled to get pressure on the QB through two weeks, ranking 31st in the league in QB hurry percentage, but their coverage unit is strong enough to contain a talent-deficient Cardinals receiving core and their defensive front and linebackers are athletic enough to not allow Kyler to run around all day like he did last week. The Cardinals are playing at the seventh fastest pace of play in the league on a raw basis. They are dead last in situation-neutral pace of play, but have fallen behind so quickly in both games that they only have about a dozen plays that qualify as situation-neutral. Everything is going to fall on Kyler Murray's back once again. We will see how that goes. Likeliest Game Flow Considering the fact that both of these teams made the playoffs last year and are known for having very good offenses in the recent past, this game appears to be going somewhat overlooked this week. This sets up as a game with high play volume and the potential for high scoring, as both teams are likely to return to their faster tempos than we have seen in the past, and both teams have clearly an easier path to moving the ball through passing plays than running plays. Matthew Stafford is facing a defense whose tendencies play into his strengths against the blitz. 
Kyler Murray is facing one of the worst defenses in the league at creating pressure, which should allow him time to scan the field for coverage breakdowns or take off and create yards on the ground. High pass rates, increased play volume, and vulnerable secondaries make a recipe for a fun Sunday afternoon in the desert. The Rams are far more likely to take control of this game, but given their close call last week and the dramatic way the Cardinals came back against the Raiders, I would expect the Rams to stay aggressive throughout the game even if they do build an early lead, which raises both the floor and ceiling expectations for this game. The Falcons at the Seahawks kick off Sunday, September 25th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 42. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Both teams have run-based identities, but playmakers who are capable of breaking things open. Seattle is showing signs that they may be considering opening things up, but Atlanta will need to be pushed. Pace of play is slow on both sides, meaning even if there are some big plays, we are unlikely to see a true shootout situation. Atlanta could be a poor showing or two away from turning to Desmond Ritter at QB. How Atlanta will try to win The Falcons rank bottom 10 in the league in pass rate over expectation, as well as situation-neutral pace of play. After blowing a big fourth-quarter lead against the Saints in Week 1, the Falcons struggled mightily to move the ball for most of the game against the stout run defense of the Rams, which neutralized the Falcons' preferred method of attack. Despite possessing two young, dynamic talents in their receiving core in Kyle Pitts and Drake London, the Falcons insist on trying to pound the ball on the ground behind PFF's 28th-graded run-blocking offensive line. They now face a Seahawks run defense that ranks third in rush defense DVOA by Football Outsiders, despite facing two solid rushing offenses in the Broncos and the 49ers. It is unlikely that the Falcons open things up or speed things up on the road in Seattle, as we saw in Week 1 on Monday night when the Broncos could barely get plays off due to crowd noise issues. If the Falcons were not aggressive throwing against the Rams, they certainly won't open things up of their own violation against the Seahawks despite the tough matchup. We should expect more of the same from Atlanta, with Corderell Patterson and rookie running back Tyler Algier splitting carries, and Marcus Mariota mixing in some designed runs as well as scrambles. When the Falcons do take to the air, they are likely to rely heavily on stud rookie Drake London, 19 targets through two games, and tight end Kyle Pitts, as the Seahawks' cover three scheme is vulnerable to tight ends in the middle of the field and gave up a lot of production to the Broncos' tight ends in Week 1 before giving up a 38-yard touchdown to the 49ers' tight end Ross Dwelly in Week 2. How Seattle Will Try to Win The Seahawks continue to play at a modest pace, ranking 25th in pace of play through two weeks, but have actually thrown the ball at a 67% rate so far this year. And Pete Carroll recently made comments about the need to attack downfield more with DK Metcalf. Maybe the let Russ cook narrative all this time should have been let Pete cook. In all seriousness, though, it makes a ton of sense that the Seahawks would pass more without Russell Wilson, something I brought up in June, as they can no longer rely on his efficiency bailing them out from long down and distance situations or big deficits. Adding to the reasons to increase their pass rate and aggressiveness is the fact that the Seahawks have the 29th graded run blocking unit in the NFL by PFF grades and are 22nd in rushing offense DVOA through two weeks. The Falcons' run defense has not been great so far, ranking 32nd in run defense DVOA, but it's going to be hard for the Seahawks to run the ball when they can't block anyone. To me, this sets up a perfect storm for the Seahawks to dial up some play action passes and take shots down the field early in the game. 
the Falcons' run defense has not been great, and they are bottom five in the league in pressure rate on the quarterback. They are likely to load up to stop the run against a Seahawks team that is known to look to establish the ground game, which will leave them vulnerable on the back end, and Geno Smith should have time to make the throws. Likeliest Game Flow Both teams are relatively dependent on their running games, and both teams have solid enough defenses, which makes this game likely to be lower scoring. However, if the Seahawks do indeed open things up a bit and take some calculated shots early in the game, that could serve to, in turn, force the Falcons out of their shell earlier than expected. Again, these are not dominant or dynamic offenses that we should expect to air things out and turn into a shootout. But there are elite playmakers on both sides of the ball that have the ability to flip this game on its head at several turns. We also have a couple of defenses that have proven to be opportunistic at times, and quarterbacks with a history of bad decision-making, which could prove to keep this game low-scoring or allow one team to build a big lead that significantly changes the game script. In a likely-scenario sense, this should be a close, low-scoring game with the Seahawks being most likely to control the lead due to the home-field advantage and crowd-noise aspects the Falcons will have to deal with. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Packers at the Buccaneers kick off Sunday, September 25th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 42. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Offensively, these teams are a shell of who they have been in recent years. Off-season losses and accumulating injuries have left these aging quarterbacks struggling to keep their team's heads above water. Several factors could lead to this game being ugly, including the strength of the defenses, offensive personnel issues, and conservative strategies of both teams. While this game's over-under of 41.5 points may seem low, the four games these teams have played have averaged 29.5 total points per game, with no games over 37 points. How Green Bay Will Try to Win Green Bay's offense looked much better on Sunday Night Football against the Bears than they had in Week 1, but they were playing a bottom-tier Bears team, so it's hard to take too much from that one game. The Packers did increase their usage of their running backs, Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon, with a lot of success. This is something that Aaron Rodgers has spoken about doing now that Devontae Adams is gone, building their offense around Jones and Dillon, as they are the two best playmakers the team has at this point. The result of that effort in Week 2 was the duo being used on 39 of the Packers' 66 offensive plays, a whopping 59%. From a tempo standpoint, the Packers are continuing their trend of recent years by bleeding the play clock regularly and playing at the second slowest pace of play in the NFL through two weeks. Week 3 will present a huge challenge to the Packers as they go on the road to face a Bucks defense that has given up 13 total points through two weeks against the Cowboys and the Saints. The Bucks defense has been a pass funnel in recent years due to their strong front seven being stout against the run, and they once again rank top three in the NFL in yards per carry allowed through two weeks. Complicating things more for the Packers, the Bucks' pass defense is also playing at an elite level. They rank first in the NFL in pass defense DVOA, per Football Outsiders, and first in the league in PFF coverage grade. Honestly, I'm not sure what the Packers can or will do in this game to have offensive success. They are built to rely on their running backs, but it seems highly unlikely that they will be able to do that in this matchup, 
and they lack explosive weapons on the perimeter who can win matchups against such a good coverage unit. I would expect the Packers to continue playing at a methodical pace and just try to keep things close in the hopes that the offensive issues of the Bucks can give them some short fields to build a lead and win a field goal contest. How Tampa Bay Will Try to Win The Bucks have looked like a Super Bowl defense to start the year, while their offense is still searching for answers. An aging offense with a quarterback who has been taking vacations, a decimated offensive line compared to last year, and a skill core that is missing practices and games regularly due to injury is bound to take its toll on any team, even one led by Tom Brady. All of those issues combined make it nearly impossible to have any sort of rhythm or chemistry this early in the season, which is exactly what we have seen. After being near the top of the league in pass rate over expectation the last couple of years, the Bucks currently sit at 25th in the NFL through two weeks in that category. The Bucks are still playing at a top 10 situation neutral pace, but the significant decrease in pass rate and decline in offensive efficiency in all areas has turned a previously feared offense into a relatively vanilla operation. Granted, the dominance of the Bucks' defense has allowed them to play things close to the vest and win ugly these first two weeks of the season, but they should have no reason to change that approach in this game with their defense once again matching up favorably. The status of Julio Jones and Chris Godwin will have a huge impact on the game plan the Bucks can use in this game. Mike Evans has already been ruled out due to suspension as Mashaan Lattimore continues to live rent-free inside his head. Godwin hurt his hamstring after coming back from his ACL tear too soon in Week 1 and has not practiced since. Julio was a game-time decision for Week 2 before being ruled out after pregame warm-ups, but also did not practice Wednesday. The Bucks will be thin and or beat up in their receiving core on Sunday, and will likely still find a way to move the ball in spurts one way or the other. Leonard Fournette will likely operate as the foundational piece of this offense and should be locked and loaded for another 20-plus carry day with a few targets mixed in as well. The Packers have played a high rate of zone through two weeks, which the Vikings exploited but the Bears didn't really even try. Whoever is playing in the slot for the Bucks this week should see a healthy dose of targets as Brady has long been known for his ability to pick apart zones for small gains and patiently matriculate the ball down the field. Likeliest Game Flow This game has the makings of a slugfest, with both teams possessing an all-time great at QB who is unlikely to turn the ball over often, and a skill core that are unlikely to break things open against a couple of tough defenses. The Bucks are the team much more likely to be aggressive and push this game if that were to happen. The most likely scenario is another game of first to 20 wins, and a lot of bleeding clocks, short gains, punts, and field goals. Nothing is gospel in the NFL, and it is certainly possible that the Packers have some back-end communication issues in their secondary like they did against the Vikings, or the Bucks' defense struggled to contain the two-headed backfield of the Packers, but both of those scenarios take a lot of imagination to get to. One way or another, it seems likely that we have a game between two great QBs that come down to the last couple of possessions, which is great for entertainment value, but it will not be in an offensive display of fireworks like many would expect given the high-profile nature of these teams and quarterbacks. Quarterbacks.